0: Welcome to the Sano Genetics Podcast. I'm Patrick Short, the co-founder and CEO of Sano. Our guest today on the podcast is Kira Denine. She's the host of the podcast DNA Today. Kira is a genetic counselor in training and has also produced more than 100 podcasts so far with an incredible range of guests. So I'm very excited to speak to her not only about her genetic counseling career, but also what she's learned from more than 200 hours in conversation from doctors and researchers, patient advocates and genetics. So this is actually a part of a, a special two-part episode. You can hear the first part over on Kira's podcast, which is DNA Today. If you type that into your favorite podcast player, you'll find it. And then the second part of the episode is here on Sano. We'll remind you at the end of the episode to go over there so you don't have to do it now. It's great to have you on the podcast, Kira.
1: Thanks so much for having me on. Exciting to be on a different genetics podcast. Yeah,
0: okay, we've got the chairs flipped around now. Um, so for everyone yes. who's not familiar with genetic counseling, I was wondering if you could just give us a quick overview of what a genetic counselor does and what inspired you to do genetic counseling in the first place.
1: Definitely. So genetic counselors are people that help the public, patients, consumers understand their personal genetics so they can make informed decisions and their healthcare. So that's kind of my pitch of what a genetic counselor does. And we're really navigators to help understand genetics. And one of our specialties is genetic testing. So there are so many different genetic tests on the market, including direct consumer tests, like 23andMe, Ancestry, My Heritage, and then other tests that are medical grade. So that would be like from companies like Myriad, Gene DX, Color so we're really able to help patients understand if genetic testing is appropriate for them what are the options there and their own genetics in terms of them personally but also their family family history is a major aspect of genetics it's really showing how genetics can play out in your family so that's something that we really focus on and talk about for me personally genetic counseling's always been Um, my career goal, and that's what I'm working towards. I'm currently in grad school. I'm halfway through. And I've always been really engaged and focused on science communication. I mean, kind of not a huge shock having a genetics uh, podcast, but I think it's a really exciting way to be engaged in science. And I was in the lab for a time period, did my undergrad um, in diagnostic genetics. So working in a lab and it was really exciting to be able to do these procedures at first and go through and the sample comes in and you're processing it and being able to do the test for it and seeing the different outcomes of that. But I learned that I really like talking about genetics more than I like actually doing genetics. So when I was going through the lab, it kind of affirmed that genetic counseling was a better career path for me.
0: Right. Fascinating. So, What's the most? Uh, it sounds like a job that could change every day. You have different patient walks into the room. It might be family family history related. It could be something completely sporadic. How do you how do you handle constantly juggling these new challenges? Is that challenging? Is it rewarding or something else?
1: I think it's definitely both. It's not a job that really gets set. Right? Oh, okay, sit down. You know, work on this report. Leave the office. When you have different patients coming in, you really never know who's walking through your door. You don't know, is this going to be a patient that is just lovely and very educated about genetics and easy to talk to? Or is this going to be a more difficult patient that maybe didn't finish high school and you're trying to explain genetics to them and bring it down to a level that they can understand. Maybe it's someone that is really going through a hard time and you end up doing more counseling than talking about genetics. So I think just the change in types of patients that you have um, and different areas of genetics to work in is very exciting and engaging. And it's something that is definitely going to keep me engaged for, you know, many decades of my career. So it's, it's good if you don't like something that's going to be the same and bore you every day. Genetics is anything but boring.
0: Yeah, it always changes, doesn't it? So your focus, my understanding in graduate school is on cytogenetics. Would you mind just explaining that to anyone who's not familiar with the term?
1: Yeah, so in my undergrad, that was my focus. So I did diagnostic genetics, and so there was kind of two paths: either to go towards cytogenetics or molecular. And so I end up uh, focusing on cytogenetics. And what cytogenetics is is the study of chromosomes. And so when you're in a cytogenetic lab, you're having samples come in, such as blood, uh, tumors, amniotic fluid, or placenta from a pregnancy. And from these samples, when you're processing, you end up getting chromosomes that you're looking at. So it's quite a process to get to that point of actually being able to look at chromosomes under the microscope. And for those that may not know, chromosomes are like pieces of our DNA. It's really if you look at the whole genome as kind of a library, the chromosomes are the different books in the library. And within those are genes, kind of like the chapters in the book, that tell our body what to do. They're instructions for proteins that make up our body. And so by looking at these chromosomes and seeing if there's any changes, we are able to provide diagnoses sometimes and also tailor treatments if you're more looking at cancer of saying, okay, we see these changes. We found that this medication is really the best to treat those types of genetic changes. So that's kind of what cytogenetics is. And so I uh, spent some time in a laboratory doing that and getting better at karyotyping. It's, um, so a karyotype is when you end up having an organized picture of those cells and you actually organize the chromosome try to see if there are changes there. Um, so it's something that is a bit of a learning curve, but uh, it's, it's like doing a puzzle. So it's, it's a fun thing to do.
0: So I was having a discussion with... Um woman a couple weeks ago who's part of a patient group called Ring20. And Ring20 uh, causes severe epilepsy. It's when chromosome 20 ends up in a ring. And she's explaining to me that actually they think the diagnosis rate of this is decreasing because today whole genome sequencing and exome sequencing that are more like molecular biology tests are becoming the norm. And things like karyotyping that you described are actually you know, probably decreasing. Is that something that you see as well? or are, are people shifting to do whole genome sequencing and it's causing maybe some unintended consequences?
1: I think that's definitely the case. Even when I was in um, undergrad and and focusing on this and sitting for my board exam, I was like, this is going to be somewhat outdated, you know, in the near future. Like, is this a good thing that I'm going for? And having that kind of conflict. But I think there are things that a karyotype can pick up, like you said, where molecular testing is not going to. When you're doing molecular testing, you're very focused on those fine details, whereas karyotyping is more of an overview. You're looking at the whole genome. With You're looking at it. It's not like you're looking at the data of it. You're actually looking at the physical chromosomes. And so things like a ring chromosome that you're talking about, where you have the ends of the chromosome, the telomeres were cut off and missing. And so those end up kind of being like sticky ends, we call it. And those then come together to form that ring. And so you're missing those genes at the end that tend to be genes that are turned on. And so they are producing proteins. And so that's more of an important area as opposed to areas where those genes are mostly turned off. I don't know specifically for chromosome 20, uh, but generally, that is what we see for telomeres and so that's just one example of what you would see in a karyotype that you may not pick up on a um, different types of molecular testing like you said of sequencing when you're actually looking at the individual letters of the gene and seeing if there's changes there um karyotyping are still somewhat standard in the prenatal area where you have someone that is going for an amniocentesis um, or a CVS chorionic villus sampling, and you're looking at cells from the pregnancy, either the placenta or looking at cells that are shed right from the fetus, and seeing is there any changes there. And this is a way that Down syndrome is typically diagnosed. Um, with that sample, uh, a genetic counselor might be saying, "Okay, I want to get a fish test, uh, which is fluorescent in situ hybridization, and that's when they are." Kind of taking these neon bright pieces um, that are associated with DNA and seeing, okay, is anything coming up for having multiple copies of chromosome 21? So that's kind of the first round. And they'll say, oh, okay, nope, we're looking at two copies. That's normal. We usually have two copies. And if we have three copies, then someone is affected by Down syndrome. But then that's always confirmed with a karyotype. So that's an example where karyotypes are still standard and used um, in the prenatal setting. And so with a karyotype also, you're going to see what type genetic change is causing the down syndrome. So usually we're talking about that third chromosome 21, but sometimes that third chromosome 21 is attached to another chromosome. And that can be really helpful information to know. So karyotyping, I can see in the near future, not being as used, but there's a couple instances like that where it really is helpful information to have
0: right and and we have to make sure that you don't trade one condition for another right if uh one of the challenges of national healthcare systems or large healthcare systems in the US is that if they decide to switch wholesale to different technologies then um you know you, you might help more people in general but uh, certain conditions can actually uh maybe you know, maybe even get worse which is uh, definitely not something we want
1: yeah definitely and i think with karyotypes too. Um, you're When you're looking at, you know, thinking from a, a prenatal perspective, that when you are ordering a karyotype, it's really that general picture to see if there's any other major changes going on. Whereas when you're doing uh, molecular testing for a pregnant person, you're looking at little snippets here and there, but that also is not testing that's going to be um, Covering as many types of conditions. You're going to be able to pick up a lot more conditions with that karyotype than molecular testing. Molecular testing, you really need to know exactly what you're looking for and saying, I want to find this. Whereas karyotyping, you're saying, let's see what we find.
0: Right. Unless I guess you do a a whole genome sequence or something, but then cost is an issue, right? You can't... um,
1: yeah, if I could just dollars. choose a test and be like, let's let's do a whole let's genome, but <laughs> I don't think everybody has that money to uh, fork out for a whole genome.
0: Yeah, so. I mean, on, on that on that topic, one of the one of the challenges with whole genome sequencing is we generate so much data, and a lot of the genetic variants are called VUSs, VUSs, or variants of unknown significance. And and I have to imagine that when someone receives one of these tests, often it's a genetic counselor that's one of the first people they speak to. So if if you have someone who has uh, a cancer or um, some kind of genetic condition, they've done testing, but you really don't know, you, know, you don't have conclusive evidence, how, how do you handle those sorts of conversations?
1: VUSs oh, are quite a pain. <laughs> They're not genetic counselors' favorites. Um, so what you're saying is it's a variant of unknown significance. And so this is when we get a result back and we say we found a change, but we don't know what it means. And when we have a VUS 90% of the time that change ends up being totally fine. What we call benign and saying the human genome has so many different changes in it. That's what makes our hair a little bit different color. Um, Our eyes a little bit different. We're kind of similar in that way. Um, But so these changes are not necessarily bad. That's what how the human race is so diverse and interesting. But sometimes those changes can lead to bad things like genetic disorders and conditions. So it's something that we definitely talk about especially before we end up doing testing for certain tests. If we know that that is a result that could happen, we explain to the patients, "Hey, look, we can get a positive, we can get a negative, but we can also get a VUS." And let me explain what that is and Most of the time when we're dealing with a VUS, we're saying, okay, 90% of the time it's going to be benign. So we're not changing your management. We're not going, we're going to treat this as a negative. It's not a negative. We're treating it as a negative and saying, why don't you check back with us six months, a year, and make sure that that is still a VUS. Because if it's reclassified saying, okay, it's no longer VUS, now it's either benign or pathogenic, that's going to change the conversation.
0: Right. So as genetic testing, karyotyping, whole genome sequencing becomes more and more frequent or common, uh, my understanding is it's growing much more quickly than the number of genetic counselors we have. Is how, how big of a problem is that? And is there a solution on the horizon for it?
1: So there are about 4,900 genetic counselors in the US. And so that's not a lot when you think about that means that's like one genetic counselor for every 100,000. So I can't meet with a hundred kids, um, as much as I try, that's not going to happen. And I think something else to take in consideration is, yeah, there's 4,900 genetic counselors in the U S but not all of them are even meeting with patients. So genetic counselors oftentimes work in hospitals are meeting with patients. Uh, the three main areas are prenatal genetic counseling. Like I've talked about, uh, pediatric where you're meeting with people, uh, kids who may have a genetic condition that is being explored, cancer like we've talked about, but there's also a lot of other areas, Uh, neurogenetics, working in a laboratory like I talked about. If I really loved the lab, I could end up going to the lab as a genetic counselor and working on those genetic test reports and explaining those reports to doctors. Um, There's areas like fertility, cardio. I mean, I could go on with how many different areas of genetic counseling there is, but again, a lot of those are not actually meeting with patients. They are educating other healthcare providers. They're doing research. They're working on public policy. So there are so many different areas that genetic counselors work in. And right now we have about 43 accredited programs in the U.S. And these are graduate school programs. I'm in one of them. And this number has been growing. Even the last few years, we've added I want to say close to 10, maybe. And so we're, we're very much growing. I mean, the number of genetic counselors, 4,900, has doubled in the past 10 years, and we're expected to grow another 75% in the next 10 years. So we're growing and growing, but uh, we're not quite growing fast enough to right. be able to meet with all these patients and talk to them. And I think that's why programs like this are so important to reach more people and explain that genetic counselors are available, but here's more information so that people can understand the whole crazy world of genetic testing.
0: One in one genetic counselor for a hundred thousand people is incredible. That, uh, that, that seems impossible to me. How, how are people not yeah. down your door?
1: A lot of places have a long wait time to get into yeah. a genetic counselor. And it depends what area you're in. I'm based out of New York city but in some areas, you know, around, here, there are so many different clinics you can go to. Um, but you know, you talk about maybe some areas in the Midwest, um, you know, down South, there are less genetic counselors there and a big pull for recruiters to bring genetic counselors down there because it's much more saturated in new England and in cities. So it's definitely a problem that, uh, we're addressing in the, and there's ways we're doing that. Like telehealth is one where, um, for, People that are in remote areas where a genetic counselor is not within an hour to two drive, um, that's one way that we're addressing things. And there's private practices that are through online, through that telehealth. So there are ways, but we have a ways to go to be able to meet patient demand and be able to provide those services.
0: Right. Now that makes sense. What, what is your, uh, to all the people who are listening that are thinking about this kind of career, what's, what's your pitch for them to I get it. out there and
1: do it. Do it. <laughs> um, I think if you are someone that really loves learning and talking about genetics and talking to people, I think that's that's really the qualities of a genetic counselor. And um, just being able to connect with people and wanting to hear their stories and saying, I, I'm able to help you by explaining this. That's really really counseling but there's also, as I said, so many different areas. If you're someone that is a little bit more of a behind the scenes, working at a lab is really exciting and being able to educate doctors in that way as well. So there are so many different areas of genetic counseling. And so I think even for me, coming from a, a lab background and saying, oh, you know, this isn't quite everything I wanted. It's it's the really cool genetics. But, you know, after for me, after I would do a procedure a few times, I'm like, OK, like the novelty's worn off a little bit. So I think if that's something, if you've been in a lab and you're like, I want something that's a little bit more uh, communication-driven, genetic counseling is a is a really, really cool option. And um, to become a genetic counselor, you need to go to, uh, as I mentioned, an accredited graduate program. And it's a two-year program. And there's different clinical rotations you take, obviously classes. Um, and it, it is competitive process to get in. Acceptance rate is about 31%. Um, but if you're, if you're doing advocacy work and really getting exposed to genetic counseling and have a passion for it, you have a really good shot of getting in.
0: Great. That's a that's a wonderful pitch. Okay, I'm ready to sign <laughs> yes. up.
1: Can you tell I'm really passionate about genetic yeah, counseling? It's,
0: it's amazing. I, so I have one more question about genetic counseling. And then I, I did want to ask you a few about uh, about the podcast, actually. And, and uh, I think you have a pretty unique perspective from all the interviews you've done. So my last question about genetic counseling oh. is, about direct to consumer genetic tests. What, what do you see as their place in the healthcare system? Do do you, is this something that you cover in, um, in your, in your grad school program, what to do, for example, if a patient comes to you and says, I've had a, a BRCA breast cancer risk variant, for example, uh, from, from this test I bought, what, what do I do?
1: I think the BRAC is is a great example, and that's that's one that I usually use. So direct consumer tests, like we're talking about, of the ancestry test, twenty three and me, um, these are tests that they're kind of a tool in our tool belt. So sometimes they are appropriate and great. I think the ancestry specifically is quite accurate, um, more accurate for people. Um, that have European white descent as opposed to other ethnicities. Unfortunately, we have more research on that, and that's a disparity that really needs to be addressed more. Um, but in general, the ancestry seems to be quite accurate. I've done a couple of tests myself. Um, interesting to see just how they can pinpoint down to specific. I'm from East Cork, Ireland, right. and I'm like great for me. That people, you end up having a bit of a discrepancy um, with family stories and results. Um, so. One of the problems that I have, though, with, with these direct consumer tests is ones that are one, uh, medically actionable results. So that would be like you mentioned for BRCA results, these, the BRCA genes one and two, um, if there is a change in them, that is a, a bad change, a pathogenic change that increases someone's risk for breast cancer, prostate cancer, um, And various cancers like that. And so the problem with these tests is, I'll use 23 Me as an example, they do testing for BRCA. Now, here's the catch. They only look at three different variants in the BRCA genes. Now, these are the most common variants that occur, um, and typically in the Ashkenazi Jewish population, but there can be thousands of changes that affect this BRCA gene from working properly. And so the, when the BRCA gene is working properly, it's protecting someone from getting cancer. If it's not working, that protection isn't working. And that's why people have an increased risk of developing cancer. And so if someone goes for this test and says, oh, 23 and Me said I'm negative for BRCA mutations.
0: Right. So I'm saying. Well, look
1: at the fine print. Exactly. Yeah. So you don't have a, one of those three ch- changes they look for it's not saying anything else about all the other changes that can be occurring. When you go to a genetic counselor or other healthcare providers that offer genetic testing, they're doing testing that is looking extensively at these genes. They're taking a deep dive into these genes. They're not just looking at three. So getting a negative from B, from 23andMe for BRCA is not a true negative. So you can still be positive for the other variant changes. And so I think that shows if Say you are of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. You're like, you know what? I'm doing the 23andMe anyway to find out what countries I'm from, throw this on there and say, oh, I came back positive. Even that we like to confirm with a medical grade test. So it can provide you some information, but I would not make medical decisions based off of results from a direct consumer test. And I think that's that's really the take-home message. If you're doing a direct consumer test, then check in with genetic counselor and say, I have these results. I want to confirm them with medical grade testing.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's that it sounds like a perfect suggestion on how to do it because the you know the, the reality is they they'll they'll try to communicate it. I think twenty three andMe is not obviously trying to mislead people, right? They they do you know they say free out of the out of the many possible tests, but it's just so challenging to communicate. All of this information at once, and it's small print in many cases. That without actually exactly. sp- speaking to a doctor or speaking to a genetic counselor to say, hey, you know, am I? What does this really mean? Does it mean I'm safe, or does it just mean you know they they didn't find anything? But it's not the end of the story,
1: right? Exactly, and and sometimes it can be a good thing that if you have a result and it's positive, that would then hopefully bring you into a genetic counselor and say, hey, I have this result as opposed to maybe before you had no idea. Um, I, I think about the adoptee community. Well, in The adoptee community don't have access to their biological family history. And so maybe this is something that they got in their stalking. Oh, find out what countries I'm from, not sure my ethnicity, and saying, oh, wow, now I'm getting this BRCA result. Let me explore this further. So I think there is a time and place for direct consumer tests, but just really think about all the implications of that. And do you even want to know this information? You know, we say think before you spit, because if you're doing this test, you may end up getting results that you, didn't, plan you on. didn't expect, or finding out that a yeah, that a biological family member is not actually a biological family member. So there are a lot of things to think about. And those are things I personally considered when taking these tests and you know, considering, oh, should I give a kit to a family member? And I'm like, oh, I don't think I want to start family drama there. What if something <laughs> happened? And you know kira gave her grandmother something for christmas and now we find out that you know someone is not actually irish or polish and so you know kind of thinking everything through and really doing your research before going for one of these tests
0: yeah absolutely I, I, my my personal view is that the the real power of these tests right now is is in powering research that getting to scale of hundreds of thousands, millions of people will really help us better understand common conditions, but they're still not not really ready to make medically actionable results on an individual level because it's, it's just challenging science to do and, and we have a, a little ways to go.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And just when people are, you know, giving their sample, giving their spit to companies like 23andMe, um you are contributing to research, whether that's something you're, you're interested in doing or not, you are doing that. Um, and it's, it's exciting to see like such a vast amount of samples and database that 23 me has to be able to pull research together. And many studies have used that database and pairing the questionnaire that goes with that so that that's definitely an area that has been a way of really contributing to the genetics community. And so there's, there's a lot of things to consider and it's not black and white. And so it's important to be exploring all sides of this.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, I think they could do a better job about transparency in general. So and they're, they're starting to change, but a lot of people were very surprised to learn that their data was going to be used. So I found in you know in, in our work that if you ask people ahead of time what they want, then they're they're happy to tell you they either want to support research or they don't. But when it's diff- if it's hidden in fine print or if it's difficult to see, then um, you know and and you set expectations one way and then they change. Then it can you know it, it sets a bad tone.
1: Definitely, a little bit less trust in a company when they're not being transparent, and you hear about some genetic testing companies selling data. And so that's definitely an area to be thinking about and concerned about before making those decisions. Because once you send in your sample, especially with your own name, then you really, you're, you're putting it out there.
0: Right. The, uh, I saw somebody post something the other day about the, the shelf life of information, your information, something you post on Instagram might only, it, it might be, Relevant for a year or for two years, but when you have something that doesn't change like your DNA then if it's gone it's gone so um, you know I, I think most people still really want to support research and and want to learn things they just want to make sure that the data is handled in the right way
1: right make sure we get informed consent before we're exactly. actually doing research on people's samples
0: yeah so I wanted to just ask a, a question or two about your perspective from running a podcast so How has it contributed to your genetic counseling career? And and also, what are some of the most interesting things you've learned in general? You've had uh, conversations with some amazing guests.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's been such an amazing experience and journey to go through with the show. I I started it when I was a senior in high school, so I didn't really know that much about genetics. And back then, it was kind of, as I learned things, share it uh, with an audience and You know, since then, it's really, really changed the past seven years of focused on interviews and bringing people onto the show that are experts in different areas. And for me, it's just been fantastic to be able to hone the skills of that science communication that I'm talking about. And it's really tough to talk about these concepts, they're really hard to understand. And then to be able to teach other people about it is a whole nother level of understanding. And so, able to Really, just practice that, and even coming on this show is some practice and being able to explain these concepts so that anyone can understand it. It may be easy to talk to someone with a PhD in genetics, you don't have to explain the nuances, but someone that is not going through that they haven't maybe finished high school or college or they're in a different area say they're in the business world they know not much about biology and they're thinking back to 10th grade and okay, you're talking about DNA and chromosomes and changes, and so. I think for me, the show has been a great way to really be able to get better at that, and it's something that genetic counselors are always working on. And with different patients, you have you're going to change that speech a little bit and use different terms. And so, I think in terms of that, it's been it's been really great. But on the side of you know talking with people, just especially the patient advocates, um, that's been a major way for me to really have more understanding and respect for everything that patients go through, especially the the patients in the undiagnosed and rare disease community. Um, Just from starting to have symptoms to then going through a diagnostic odyssey, starting organizations that I have so much respect for. And it's just really great to be able to hear from them um, and, and really be humbled by it. And, when you're having those tough conversations, it's, you know, you're on air and you're, you're talking to people about their lives. I think it's, it's really a great way to be able to practice for when, you know, I'm having a patient sitting in my office and opening up about this. I'm like, okay, I've, I've done this before. I've had these hard conversations. And so I think it's, it's that genetic side of the teaching, but it's also that more counseling side of being able to process with someone and um, you know, been very exciting to explore different areas of genetics. So it's, it's been a really great way to kind of start my career and, um, you know, see what areas I'm even interested in. I don't know what specialty I'll, I'll end up in because everything seems really interesting. So I think it's hard do to, anything
0: now. Yeah. to narrow
1: down. Yeah, definitely. But it's, it's been su- such a, a cool journey to be going on. And, um, I'm looking forward to kind of seeing where it goes in the future and no, no plans to stop. So.
0: Well, great. Now, I, I think that's a that's a perfect place to end. So I know you've done more than a hundred podcasts. Uh, continued success, and uh, I'm sure the next hundred will be an amazing set of guests, and and you'll learn a lot. But more importantly, you'll hopefully teach people a lot. And, and thanks as well for uh, giving the great pitch on genetic counseling. I think it's an incredibly important and and I know incredibly scarce resource that we have in the UK, in the US, and and everywhere. So um, it's, uh, it's great that you're out there encouraging people to do this very important work.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. And I think it's something that, as you said, is really important for people to learn and know about and just know that genetic counselors are there. And I should have mentioned before, if you're looking to find a genetic counselor, you literally just go to findageneticcounselor.com. And so they'll find one in your area. Um, that's for the US. I should have looked up something for the UK, I'm realizing. Um, but if you're in the US, that's a great resource. And for people that are interested in um, potentially genetic counseling as a career about genetic counselor.com um, is a, a great website as well. Um, right. And this podcast as well that you're, you're talking to a lot of really important people. You had uh, uh, Dr. Eric Topol on the show. So you have a lot of um, really experts in the field. So even just listening to podcasts is great to be able to learn about all this.
0: Yeah. He's got a really amazing perspective. He's um and he's really good about communicating it to a wide audience. He takes, uh, he takes things that are really challenging, and I think he's done, it. he's done it so many times that he really knows how to break it down in a way that's accessible.
1: Yes, he's an expert communicator.
0: Yeah. Well, great. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, and thank you all for listening. As always, you can send any feedback, including questions you have, guests you'd like to see on the show, or anything else to podcast at sonogenetics.com. Remember, this is just one part of a two part episode. So if you haven't been to the DNA Today podcast, you can type it into whatever podcast player you use and you'll find it. You can listen to the rest of the episode where we flip the mics around and Kira takes over the interview. As always, if you like the podcast, we'd love it if you could share it with a friend or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And then finally, feel free to visit our website, sanogenetics.com, to learn more about our research studies, read more on our blog. Or just send us an email and ask us a question. Thanks again for listening and head over to DNA Today to hear the next half.